Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the 12-6 Podcast. I'm your host, Colin McHugh. It's February 2020, so you know what that means. That's right, baseball fans. Spring training is right around the corner. Report date is usually a bittersweet day in the McHugh household because it has meant in the past driving down to Florida on Valentine's Day or the day before. And if you follow me or my wife, Ashley, online, you might know our yearly Valentine's Day tradition of eating dinner at some random chilies along the way. But I'm still a free agent right now, so we'll see if I report with the team in the next couple of weeks or if I get to spend a Valentine's Day at home for the first time in nearly a decade. Anyway, today's conversation is with someone who is right at the top of my dream guest list. He's a Hall of Fame pitcher who played 22 seasons with the Atlanta Braves and my childhood hero, John Smoltz. We talk about our mutual 100 lost seasons, the drama behind the Chicks Dig the Long Ball commercial, and if you stay till the end, you'll understand why you just heard Swedish pop band ABBA in our intro. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy today's conversation with John Smoltz. John, thank you for being here, man. Um, I've told a lot of people about this, and people have asked about the podcast a lot and thought, who, if you could have anybody on here, who would it be? Did you have a dream guest? And I always said, I think it would be John Smoltz. Well, thank um, you. Yeah, so you're here now. This is kind of a dream for me, so I'm sorry to all my listeners who want me to ask very specific questions or mm-hmm. whatever. This is for me. I'm going to ask the questions that I want to ask <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm curious about. Um, so yeah, thanks again for being here. This is uh, a pleasure for me, and, and I think we're going to have a good time. Absolutely. Um, all right, so you probably don't remember the first time we met, but I remember the first time we met. You were doing an autograph session mm-hmm. at Crystal in oh Roswell. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know what Crystal is, it's like the southern equivalent of White Castle. Yep. Um, little tiny square burgers. And I stood in line for, I, I, I don't know how long, when you're a kid it feels like yeah. days. But I was like, I see him, I can see him down there, I'm going to make it down there. And I still have the ball you signed for me, so um, yeah, we go way back. That's how, how old were you? I was 10 years old. Oh my gosh. I remember the Crystal signings and, uh, you know, I remember... Um, the lines at a lot of places that I would sign. And, and I, I also remember telling the people that were doing it that if the lines get too big, there's no way I can get everybody and I'm going to end up looking like the bad guy. It ended up, I couldn't wait to do it, but then it became a fear factor of what if I can't get everybody autograph? It's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, I've done, I've done a couple of those things now. And when you have, you see the line out the door, you look at your watch, you're like, I have 10 minutes left before yeah, I'm going to go. You got to, you're like, somebody else, please play the bad guy. The worst all time. I was offered to play Augusta for the first time to do an autograph show and to do a charity thing for the March of Dimes. So, of course, you know, you, you haven't played Augusta. You're going to do it, right? You don't yeah. know. So the autograph was right after 1991, we go to the World Series. So imagine we didn't win it, but everybody here was so caught up in what we did. The line was so big and so long that I was telling people, we can't get to them. you got to tell them. They put us in a glass room and we're signing privately while these people couldn't get. They started banging on the windows. Oh my God. They were so mad that it became such a bad experience for me that I said I would never do that again. They were yelling at us because they had been waiting in line to get these autographs. And then they took us to another private function to get us out of there that had already pre sold all the tickets for autographs. God. It was almost not worth. Playing Augusta. <laughs> <laughs> Atlanta in the early 90s was, I mean, it was wild. 
because it, it had been so long since any team in Atlanta had been good. We shocked people. That's mm-hmm. the best way I can describe it. You know, nobody expected us to do anything in that year. We were coming off a hundred loss season or close to it. And when you do something that shocks people, no matter where you go, they're still in shock. Yeah. So they got to touch you. They got to ask you. They got to get the autograph. So there was a point where no matter where we went, meals were being picked up. People were signing, you know, asking for autographs. And it literally got to the point where it was. It was crazy to think that we could set Atlanta upside down, and we didn't even win. Right. You know, we went game seven, epic game seven, but it, it was crazy times, and, um, you know, well, I'll never forget it uh, because my mug was on TV a lot in game seven, of course, of both the pennant and the World Series, so instant recognition uh, wherever I went, and um, then people got familiar with me being in this area for obviously the last 30 years. Right, yeah, you've been here, you've been here a long time. We were just yeah. talking about that. Yeah, you're kind of a staple in Atlanta now and have been for a long time. Yep. Uh, but you played 22 years in the big leagues. Is that right, 22? Yeah. yeah, parts of 22 and all but one of those years with the Braves. Right. So, yeah, you were here as a part of this organization and as a part of the city for a long, long time. Um, we'll kind of go back to where you started. You're from Lansing, Michigan, right? Correct? Yeah. yeah. From Lansing, 22nd round pick by the hometown Tigers. The Tigers, yeah. Um, which must have been a dream. I know it didn't end up <laughs> right. it didn't end up uh, going to the big leagues with them, but um, being from there and your family history with them and everything, that was probably amazing. But as a 22nd round pick, for those of you who need some context, there's I, I don't know, remember if there was 45 or 50 rounds at About that right. point. Yeah, in the MLB draft, but that's kind of midway through. And in today's draft, it would be very different than what happened with you. You were able to sign for... I think close to first round money. Yeah. And with some different circumstances, multiple multiple sport athlete, you had a, you know, commitment to to Michigan State. Michigan State. It was it was one of the most life-changing moments for two and a half. Well, for six weeks this process started. I was told I was going to be anywhere between first and third round pick. Yeah. Uh for whatever reason, um, maybe they were scared that I was going to college because I signed to go to Michigan State really early. I wanted that process over. Yeah. When I found out I was drafted 22nd round, I really did. I was really disappointed. But I was also elated that it was my hometown team. But I knew there was no way they could sign me based on my my requirements of what I wanted to go, not go to college. Yeah. So I had an um, unbelievable uh, summer. I played in all the top tournaments you could play in. I actually went up a level uh, from, from my performance, maybe probably because of that chip on the shoulder. Yeah. So that led them to thinking about conversations outside of 22nd round and they tried every game in the tri- in the book. You know, they offered fifteen thousand, and then it just kept climbing. Yeah. And we eventually got to sixty, and they thought that was the most they could do is set a record for twenty second round pick. And I told my dad, unless they get close to first round money, I'm going to college. So literally up against the buzzer, Sunday night was the deadline to be signed. Monday morning, I've been at Michigan State. Yeah. And we got to that first round money with the little addendum that they put on the contract to work it out. And my life changed like that. I mean, yeah. I was literally going to Michigan State on Monday, or I ended up going to New York with the big club, joined the Tigers, and and stayed with them for the last month and change of the season. Which is crazy to me. I heard that story, and I was like, thinking back as a rookie, you know, I was a rookie who had been in the minor leagues for five yeah. years when I first got to the big leagues, but you were just drafted yeah. up around all these big It was guys. crazy, because I knew every one of them. They didn't know who I was. They were like, who's this young kid following us around? And I'd never been to New York. I'd never been to a hotel room that had a credit card for a room key. I was a fish out of water, and I was staying around the uh, bullpen catcher. Like, he was my guy to follow around. Yeah. And then I would dress out, 
do BP with them, throw on the side, but I rarely threw. It was more mechanical readjustments that yeah. they were doing. And then when the game started, I'd go in the stands, dressed up, and then go back in the clubhouse, go to the team bus, go to the – and this was unbelievable to think that I got a sneak preview of big league life. You know, most people go to rookie ball. I missed all that. They go to A ball. And so from that experience, I then went to instructional league and started my quest to, you know, climb the ladder and get to the big leagues. But you could not ex- – there's no way that my journey wasn't unique. It never happens. It never no. happens. And But at the same time, I was a confused – like they changed everything about my mechanics. The big league pitching coach put me in such a funk. That's fun, immediately. That, <laughs> that I called home saying, telling my dad, I said, I'm not that good. He goes, what do you mean? He says, I- I'm not even throwing like I used to. I haven't even thrown a bullpen session for two weeks. I'm working on this drill that I would finish my delivery and shake hands behind me. And it was <laughs> – I was my, – my, my hamstrings were ready to explode. I was – I just couldn't believe – how many changes he made, and it really kind of, it really did confuse me for a while in trying to learn those through instruction league, A ball, and eventually double A, and then I got traded out of double A. That's tough because you don't, the guy had never seen you really throw before, so people making adjustments right off the bat. Do you think that the way that the draft is working now, where like there's slot money and there's kind of like a cap on what teams can spend in the draft, which makes for a more even playing field, I think, but I think it probably also takes away from the ability to sign some of those elite athletes, which you were. You were a two-sport athlete. You had other options. Right. So since a team could come in and offer you what they offered you, um, it's not really available to teams now for a guy drafting the 22nd round. Do you think that puts like a little, like it hamstrings some teams as as far as getting some elite athletes? Yeah, I kind of understand in theory why they tried to do it, but at the same time there is some, you know, still a difference between the international draft and and, and our draft. Yeah. you know, the system back then was, I don't want to say antiquated, but it was what we had. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't like the big everybody knows about you now and the MLB Network showcases the draft and all that. This was more about a phone call. And then the scouts did a majority of the work and right. trying to negotiate and who was signable and who wasn't. You know, back then, college was a big deal. The money was worth a lot more than the signing bonuses that guys were getting or close to it. And today, that's not the case. Today, college... If you're going to college, it's for other reasons, right. you know. Um, and I think from the way that the the system was set up back then, there was a lot more flexibility and a lot of opportunity to to do different things. Whereas today, to your point, is is you kind of know where you're slotted, you know what you're going to get, and there's there's less of of that interaction, so to speak. We we were fortunate. My dad did all my negotiation. He's a salesman <laughs> by trade. Yeah. And the irony of all of it was there was a miscommunication on the on on up the ladder to what this addendum was going to be. And I remember my first week in spring training, I was called in. The general manager's airing me out, and I didn't know why. I mean, I just wanted to play baseball, and it was it was it was interesting times. I learned a lot, and then I I, I got traded over to a club that had the greatest general manager turned manager in the history of the game, and Bobby Cox, and. It was the greatest thing that could ever happen to me personally. I didn't yeah. think so at the time. I was devastated, and I thought that I was my career was going in the wrong direction. I was five and eleven, or whatever my double A re- season was. I was struggling, and they turned it around in Atlanta. Uh, they made it simple. Leo Mazzoni said to throw an athletic pitch. He thought that was perfect. I looked at him like, "Are you sure?" <laughs> <laughs> and then I got a chance to upgrade my pitches and really get my quest and goal to pitch in the big leagues at an early age was only uh, given to me by Atlanta. Yeah. I mean, Atlanta, I feel like is where, obviously it's where you got your start in the big leagues. Let's rewind back to, 
a day I'm sure you remember really well. Um, I'll give you my perspective on it. And mm-hmm. I'm interested to get your perspective on it. Game 7, 1992. It's the clinching game against the Pirates for the NLCS. Right. You're on the mound. I think you threw seven or eight, eight yeah. innings. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, my remembrance of this starts in the ninth inning when Francisco Cabrera up the bat, hits right. a single, Sid Bream rounds third, comes in, safe, safe, safe at home. My mom stands up. She's so excited. We're in Chicago, but they're Braves fans. They're from yeah. Atlanta. She stands up, super pumped, smokes my dad right in the face. Oh. Just hands up everywhere, so excited, almost breaks his nose. It's pandemonium in the McHugh household. But it was the second time y'all had won the pennant. Yeah. Um, second year in a row, which was, like you had said, crazy. After right. multiple 100 lost seasons, you had been part of those 100 lost seasons but had had some success. Mm-hmm. Um, and these teams in Atlanta were about to make a run yeah. to be some of the best teams ever. Was there something that you remember as a catalyst to um, making that change? Or was it just a natural kind of evolution? You know, the biggest thing was when Bobby became manager. Yeah. He instilled a system and, and, a, and a, an atmosphere that was so conducive for winning. This guy had won his, basically his whole life. He was the general manager that stockpiled the, the team with pitching and the, and the draft picks and the trades. And now he was going to orchestrate, you know, kind of a last chance to get this thing going in the right direction. When we added Terry Pendleton, Sid Bream, and at Raphael Billiard, you could sense that we added somebody that could tell us and show us the ways to winning. We were young. We lost a lot. Yeah. We were looking and searching for what it was going to be like to ever win. I remember telling Glavin, I said, I don't think my, my single A team was 25, 30 games under 500. My double A team was the same. The team I got to in Atlanta and AAA was the worst baseball team I've ever seen assembled. And then I get to the big leagues and we lose 100 games our first two years or more. And I'm like, this is, if this is what the big leagues is going to be like, I, I, I want to win. Right. I'd be a fly on the wall, I said, if we could just get in an organization to see what that's like. And then they brought it over. And really, Sid had won. And Terry comes from the St. Louis Cardinals. And they started instilling uh, a leadership and winning and, and that what we could do. Ironically, in 1991, we're seven or eight games back of the All-Star break. And yours truly is 2-11. and 11. <laughs> Nine games under 500, and that nine-game deficit could be pointed right at me. I was having a miserable, statistical, but not that bad of a year. It's hard to say that 2-11, yeah. and 11, you're not having that bad of a year. But things would happen that I personally made a philosophical change to my outlook I let an off-season contract negotiation get personal. Mm -hmm. And I went out every single game to show why that should not have been and why he should have paid me and da-da-da-da-da, and it backfired. Yeah. So I got into a funk. Well, consequently, my manager believed that I could get out of that funk, and he left me in the second half as a starter. Which is huge. Way huge. And I go 12-2, and virtually unbeatable the last 14. I don't think I lost the last 14 starts. And what, what's amazing about it is I pitched nine innings to clinch it against Houston to get us into the playoffs, which the place, you know, that's when Greg Olson jumps in my arms that yep. I didn't know and the picture that was going to be forever. <laughs> the place goes crazy. Well, I get a chance to pitch game seven in 91 on the road against Pittsburgh and go nine innings. He jumps in my arms again. And then, of course, the outcome in 91 in the World Series Game 7. But fast forward to to 92, we now had this confidence in ourselves that we could return. What people forget is we had a three-games-to-one lead against the Pirates in 92. 
I'm getting ready for game one of the World Series. Right. I had pitched game one and game four against Doug Drabeck. Well, now we lose game five and six, and I'm thrust into a game seven. And I'm kind of bitter about it. Like, you go from a prime position and you're going to start game one to now you're in another game seven. So this is three game sevens in a year and a half. Oh, yeah. So it was one of those games where I gave up a couple cheap runs. We're losing two to nothing, like you said. And I literally was pouting in the clubhouse, the farthest place away from the field, thinking, I can't believe we're going to lose this series. And then pandemonium happens. Yeah. And I sprint from the farthest part of the clubhouse to on the field, never saw the play. <laughs> never saw the play for a while and just dogpile. Yeah. Our run, which was so incredible, that started in a place where we never thought it could start and lasted longer than we could have ever imagined, was only because of Bobby. And our run, which is unfortunate in baseball, our first eight World Series losses are by one run. We had so many opportunities to win World Series after World Series that we ultimately came up short. And it's so frustrating to look back and go a play here, a ball put in play here. Inches. I mean, yeah. And that's the one thing that people don't understand. When you go through 14 straight divisional titles, the numbers alone would say you should have at least won three championships. But when in four of those years, you're really not the favorite right and you're there because you've overachieved it gets lopped in with you should have won right so i'll give you 91 as a toss-up 92 was hard to take yeah 95 we finally win mm -hmm. 96 is the biggest gut punch in the history of sports because which probably changed everything it did yeah we're up two games to none going home against the big bad yeah, yankees you won two in the bronx I remember. It was crazy. And we crushed them. It wasn't even close. It was like 12 to 1 and 10 to nothing or some crazy numbers. And we come home, and not that we relaxed or hit the reset button, things started to unfold that changes the momentum in a way that you just go, uh-oh. And, of course, my game five, one to nothing loss on an unearned run was the scale that, that tipped the scale in the favor of the Yankees, and they went on to win four of the next five World Series. Yeah. And that could have been us. Yeah, the juggernaut that became the 90s yes. Yankees. Um, yeah, being from Atlanta, I remember all of those games. I remember all of the, I mean, they were all incredibly close. Yeah. I mean, the baseball was the best baseball I've ever seen for a span of time, Yeah, um, for a long, consistent span of time. But uh, yeah, I remember And those the guy games. that never gets enough credit for the two greatest games ever pitched in a series is Steve Avery. Steve. Two one-to-nothing victories in 1991. And... To think that in that series alone, each team set a scoreless streak innings stretch in the same series. So <laughs> Pittsburgh shut us out for like 19 or 18 straight innings, and then we broke the record in the last 21 innings. We shut them out at their place in game six and game seven, one to nothing, four to nothing. And to me, that that two one-to-nothing games, 0-0 zero, zero going into the ninth, brink of elimination. I'm getting ready to pitch game seven. I'm throwing up. I want to throw up. I have nothing, <laughs> but I'm hoping that it works. Those those kind of games and those kind of times of you know are different now. You won't see many of those battles. You won't see two pitchers go nine. You won't right. see a pitcher go ten. And just to even have that opportunity to do that and almost pull off the trifecta, if I'd have had a few more years on me, 
I'd have told my manager to get back to the dugout like Jack told his in the <laughs> World Series. But those are things that we grew up dreaming about, and we got a chance to fulfill and and pitch at the highest level with the most pressure and and ultimately so close to having a lot of things go our way. Yeah. See, you and Tom Glavin came up together. Yeah, um, he came up. He got called up before me. My trade of Doyle Alexander mm -hmm. allowed for Tommy to get called up. To get so called I up. only think about the trade of what it did for me, but he reminded me of what it did for him. Yeah. And it prevent, it provided a spot for him, and then he went up. Even though he lost 17 games his first year, <laughs> yeah. um, he was able to develop into the pitcher that he became, you know, and obviously a Hall of Famer. Yeah, the the comparison between you and Tommy and then uh, when me and Dallas both came up with the Astros, the similarities are crazy. Dallas mm -hmm. was there in the – 300 lost seasons. Yep. And then I got there in 2014, and we both kind of fed off of each other's success. Right. Um, even though we didn't have a very good team, we both felt like we were dominating out mm -hmm. there every time we went out. We weren't winning a ton of ball games, but we felt really good. And I think we kind of carried that, whether we were kind of competing with each other or getting the confidence from watching each other have some success. Right. Um, it kind of fed into the next few years where we did have good teams and we were we were able to contribute to some winning teams. Did you feel like that was the same way with you and you and Tom coming up, and then when Steve came up as well yeah. um, early on, that there was that that like glue that you guys kind of had for sure. Like when we looked around and we said, "How are we going to get out of this mess?" Well, it was going to start by pitching, and so when the pitching started developing and Glavin became who he was, and then they traded for me. You know, we had uh, a poster, you know, with. Tommy Green, Pete Smith, Tom Glavin, myself, and Steve a Avery. Is the you know these were going to be the five that were going to take us to the promised land. Well, Steve Avery. What people forget is he was Clayton Kershaw before Clayton Kershaw was ever known. I mean, that's how good he was. Injury yeah. derailed him from becoming the dominant left-hander that he was becoming. So we, Tommy and I knew that, you know, once the veterans kind of slipped down, you know, we had Charlie Liebrandt that led us, which was crucial. And then we got Tom, then we got Greg Maddox in 93, and we we're like, uh oh, yeah, we got a chance to do something special. So we took a lot of pride in, in, in everything that we did every five days. Um, you know, we, we pitched a ton of innings, I think it was 250 there for a while, and my high was 260, and which is crazy. I mean, that doesn't happen anymore, it, it doesn't, but it, it, it was a trainable, it was trainable then, and yeah. it's still trainable today, but not at the velocity that everybody's throwing. <laughs> yeah, we've kind of come. A ways with technology, but when we let technology and information hurt us in ways too. To think that the three of us had 750 innings between us on average there for a while takes a lot of load off your bullpen and takes a lot of load off of the club that, you know, doesn't have to necessarily have five starters. So we had four, um, and the fifth was a floater that would pitch when we had a stretch of games. Right. And, you know, we knew that that mantle was ours. And Bobby indirectly basically said that. You know, after April and closing in, the, once May came, it was ours. There was no turn back look for the bullpen for help. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that's part of why we didn't win as many championships. We never really had that bullpen mm -hmm. that exists today. Uh, we didn't have that dominant closer for stretches, you know, only for stretches, not for a long time. And it was ours to finish. And, and what I'm most thankful for is through that I became the pitcher I became. I don't think without it. I don't think I would have been as good. I, I really don't. Uh, I was able to go through the b bumps and bruises, pitch through a 2-11, get my brains beat in, and figure it out. Yeah. 
Today, this would never happen. I would, you'd never see a 211 pitcher again because he would be branded the bullpen guy, and it would definitely not develop my third and fourth pitch. When I got in the big leagues, I only had two pitches. That's it. Yeah. I threw outside fastballs and a slider. That's it. <laughs> I developed. I brought back my curveball because Detroit canned it. I developed a split, and I learned how to manipulate the ball on both sides of the plate. We were taught dominate in one area and improve in the other. So, but dominate in one. So, what is your sweet spot? Mine was down and away, fastball away. Yep. I was a ter- I was terrible at pitching in, but I didn't <laughs> have to. I just effectively did it enough. And it was a simple process. And we were also taught throw every day you want to throw and throw get on side, get on the mound. We were throwing twice in between starts. So yeah, you, it's different times and expectations were greater. But man, it was so much. There was so much gratification in getting the ball and knowing it was going to be ripped out of your hands or you were just not good enough. And that was um, I'll never forget those days. And 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 certainly uh, the guys before us pitched even more than us. So it wasn't like. I don't know how we got here, but we're here now in an era where 200 is a miss, you know, it's like a dream. Yeah, it's <laughs> an anomaly. Happen. Like we had, we had three 200, 200 inning pitchers two years ago with the yeah. Astros, and that hadn't happened in almost 10 years. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, and bullpens are becoming better, more talented, and people are being more aggressive using them. So, yeah, it's a different game and it's changed. And yeah. like you said, it's, it's been evolving for a long time. Um, but that sweet spot where, you guys were in the, especially in the early '90s, having the aces back to back to back to back, was fun to watch. Yeah. Honestly, it makes for good baseball. As a baseball fan myself, it made for really good baseball. Yeah. Um, and you hit on this a little bit, but you had struggles in '91. Mm-hmm. You were two and eleven. Yeah. Um, and a lot has been made from sports psychology, right? And I know you've got a fairly extensive background in it, from being kind of one of the first guys to. I don't know the whole story. I don't know whether you were one of the first guys to get publicized for it. If it was, it just was kind the of one a, that that made the story. The story was bigger than the substance. It was an easier story to tell. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And what people don't understand is that you know everyone goes into slumps, and some is physical, some are mental. A lot of them usually are mental. Yeah. Um, and no one wants to ever deal with the fact that you're talking to somebody to get you out of a mental slump, but you would talk to somebody to get you out of a physical slump. Yeah. From a mechanical standpoint, and so this was a simple process. And that I think people made it such a big story. Think about having a sports psychologist help you and no one asking you about it. And then writing stories about how this sports psychologist transformed your career and made you into a pitcher, which is totally false. Mm -hmm. And so I had to live under that. I just was ignored it and and then for a while just even paid attention. And they were interviewing him and not me. And so it became too big of a story. And then eventually I had to turn the page and say, look, here's how simple this was. I had a philosophical problem with how I was processing my issues. I would not be able to get out of it an inning because I would get too frustrated and mad. This process led me to watching the best pitches of that I have for a two-minute clip. I watched it before every game. I refocused what the things that I can do and not things that are made up. Like it was all that I could do already. And it was such a simple turnaround that for me, I didn't think twice about it. Yeah. And then I come to find out that this story was evolving and that he was wearing a red shirt in the stands that I knew nothing about. <laughs> and that that was the indicator that if I wanted to pick him up to remind me of the things, it was the simplest, easiest transformation mentally that I utilized in a way where 
it's like having files of, of all good things and files of bad things. Well, I was thinking of the bad things while I was in this slump right? instead of the good things. And he reminded me that just this two-minute video. So the video guy took up all my pitches, the best ones I threw, and just played them in a loop. And I would watch that loop before I would pitch, and it became an integrated way to step off the mound, think about those pitches, know I did them, and then execute. And I was never a negative guy in my entire life, but I became negative in that year. Yeah, I just had my first child. Life was dealing me all kinds of different challenges. And then I have this story that is being built bigger than it is, and people are having me lay on a couch like as a cartoon with me. ticked. And I got a little frustrated after about a year and then put an end to it and said, do you want to know what went on right. <laughs> or not? Yeah. And so sports psychology is huge if you allow it to be the asset that it is. Mm -hmm. If somebody wants to make a name for themselves and create attention, well, then it's not as big as it right. can be. But in the aspect of where I was probably one of the first one that would would talk about it, there was many players that were doing it quietly. Right. And I and ironically, in all the information that we have today and all the analytics, the one thing we're still missing more than anything is the mental capacity or, or component for which players and, um, and management doesn't know enough about players. There are ways to advance a player's career from a mental standpoint that I think we haven't reached yet, in my opinion, that would even embark in the injury prevention, that would even embark with who and what kind of player you're getting with a heartbeat because everyone believes or thinks that every player has the same dna and they don't i played with enough guys that didn't want the ball hit to them under circumstances and i played with enough guys that wanted the ball hit to them and so from from a, my always my philosophy in, in everything that i ever did was if you're afraid to fail you're in trouble and I was never afraid, afraid to fail, never afraid of the moment, and never afraid to answer the questions when I didn't get it done. It made me better. It drove me to become the best version of myself. And that's why those big games, I thrived under. I loved them. And I was, I was willing to deal that pressure as something as, as I couldn't wait to be under. Yeah. And not everybody's like that. You can't put everybody in a bullpen situation and think they're going to succeed. Or And that's the one thing that I'm afraid the game has spit, spit out of the computer that everybody's a robotic, interchangeable part, and oh, it's yeah. not. And they don't understand because most of the people making these decisions are not baseball people. They don't understand the difference between a seventh inning, eighth inning, and a ninth inning, and the difference between the personality A, B, and C. Right. And that, to me, is the next step in what this information craze you know, game is if you get to that point, you'll be better served to put together a team and understand the players better. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to quantify. It's hard yep. to quantify what a person can do and can't do from a mental perspective. Yeah. Um, physically, you just assume that the stats are going to tell you what a guy can and can't do. Everybody has a comfort level, and as soon as you get outside that comfort level, one or two things is going to happen. You're going to run from it or run to it, meaning you're going to be uncomfortable, and that pressure is going to create tension. And tension is going to cause you to do one of two things. Get out of there so you don't feel the tension or run towards that and, and, and embrace that attention. I like to think of it as in, in golf. I've had the greatest experience of baseball in my life. All the pressure you can imagine, the biggest games in the world, nothing compares to, to, to that. Yeah. But that didn't prepare me for everything else that I'm going to do. Until I get outside my comfort zone in golf, for example, I have felt like the most out-of-body experience ever in, in, in the U.S. Open that I qualified for. 
And so until you go through it, you never know what you don't know. And For sure. That's the one area that I love talking to players. I love t- seeing players play under the highest circumstances and see how they deal with it and what they do because if you don't if you try to run from it, if you if you're like, "Oh shoot." You'll never know how great you can become. Growth happens outside the comfort zone. It doesn't happen inside. Is you comfortable? You just stay in that little circle. It's easy to perform when you when you control all of the variables. Right. But when you're put, yeah, when you said when you're put outside of what is comfortable for you. I mean, that was my story. The last few years, I got moved from the rotation to the bullpen, and you have to you have to figure out. You yes. Have, you have to figure your stuff out out there because. Nobody's nobody's out there. We always talk about the bullpen being kind of like the offensive line in football. Nobody's there to pamper you. Nobody mm-hmm. nobody cares about making sure that everything's okay. They just expect you to do your job. Yep. And when you're out there, you gotta you kind of are on your own. And you become your own pitching coach. You become your own right. mental skills coach. You become a lot of times um, your own trainer. And this is just kind of how life is down there. And it was a big adjustment for me. And I know that for you, you made that, made that transition from starter to reliever. And I'm sure you had your own. Oh, of, it was uh, the biggest, I, I tell people it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life because from going from one spectrum of control and structure and something I love pitch every five days to being the closer and going by the seat of your pants and having an adrenaline rush that's unmatched and learning how to deal with that. Personality-wise, I'm much suited, more suited for a starter than I am a closer, but I learned how to get it done through a tremendous amount of failure that no one could have ever understood. When I made this transition, uh, I mean, my first or second time I was out as a full-time closer, I gave up eight runs and two-thirds of an inning. Now, my year's shot. Yeah. It's over. ERA-wise, you can't come back from that. Cannot come back, and I had to reassess where I was and what I was trying to accomplish. Obviously, I tell people... Being a closer or reliever in a high leverage situation, you come in and blow the lead. It's like you got a booger on your nose and everyone's staring at you like, what did you just do? And uh, you got to have no memory. You got to forget. You got to go right back out there in a way that um, you believe in yourself that that was a fluke. And I had one simple, simple goal as I became the closer. If I never blow two in a row, I never feel like I'm going to go in a slump. Mm -hmm. Because now you're in a position where you just feel like, oh, wait, Two in a row, I'm definitely getting interviewed. Think about it. You never get interviewed unless you blow a game. Oh, yeah. So my first year, fortunately, you know, I did have 55 saves, but I did blow four. And out of those 55 saves, I got interviewed four times. Yep. <laughs> and and that's the dealing you have to have when you're in that kind of high leverage situation. And, uh, of course, I, I, I learned as I went uh, along and, you know, did it for three years, but ultimately got a chance to return back to starting. I talked to Will Harris and, and Sean Doolittle about that too, about kind of the you play the goat a lot of times mm-hmm. that when you when you fail, it's what everybody thinks about. It. It's the only thing people think about. But you could run off 10, 12, 15 good outings in a row and people just assume like, oh, well, he's doing his job. Congratulations. Here's a little pat on the back. Yeah, it's definitely a, a, a psychological big-time different approach. You know, slow and steady as a starter, build up the adrenaline. If you do get to the eighth or ninth, that's what becomes exciting. Boy, you come into the ninth, it's already. It's like eight innings of that previous pitcher is insignificant. And I always said a closer gets too much credit and too much blame. And that's where our game is. It's the end result of which we feel comfortable with. That's why Mariano Rivera is one of the best all time. And, you know, just trying to get 
I, I had I had a simple goal, and it really helped me because I not that you ever get bored, but that when you come into a five run game or a four run game, you're like. Pfft. I mean, I can get three outs before I give up four runs. You get a long leash, yeah. Yeah, and the next thing you know, you can work yourself into trouble and you lose your concentration on getting out. So I did. I made this challenge to myself. I said, I'm going to throw a nine-inning no-hitter out of the bullpen. And the only reason and the only way you can do that is one batter at a time because you don't get to pitch nine consecutive innings. And so I told somebody, I told a PR guy, I said, don't tell me until after I do it. And I think I got to eight and two-thirds. Oh, man. Yeah, I didn't get to nine innings. But my goal was simple. Come in, get the first guy out, you're never in a big jam. Right. Get the first guy on, you're in a big rally no matter what happens. They, they start thinking they got a chance. And I had a luxury the coming in that most closers didn't because they usually earn their luxury, that my previous years of starting gave me an edge. And most of the hitters tell me afterwards, and kind of what I knew before is they never wanted to get to two strikes. So I could get quick outs. I was getting saves in seven and 10 and 12 pitches, which allowed me to pitch multiple, multiple games in a row. So I could go five out of six. Guys were swinging quick. Yeah, they didn't want to get to two strikes. Right. They knew I was going to throw strikes. So my job was to keep that leverage, whether it was my last name or that leverage of the mound of, say, I'm going to pitch and I'm going to be on attack and I'm going to get quick outs. And... Today is different because everyone wants to embarrass the hitter. Yeah. They want to strike out every hitter, therefore throw 30 pitches in an outing, which reduces the effectiveness of what you can be. Mm -hmm. And that part's changed because all the sexiness of the 14 strikeouts per nine innings becomes a bigger barometer than the fact that you've actually just gotten three outs and didn't get a strikeout. Right. So a lot of things and, and goals have changed from certain pitchers where to prove a point, I had 21 consecutive fastballs in three games and got three saves. <laughs> and, you know, the point I was trying to make with other future guys that were going to be a closer is your fastball is good enough. Now, yeah. if it's a one-run game, all bets are off. you got to get that guy out because he's looking to take you deep from right. the beginning. But why utilize all your weapons in a three-run, two-run game when you, you don't even have the time run to the plate? Get outs. Yeah. And then you can come right back the next day, day and get out. So it was a little different back then. I mean, without a doubt, the the game has changed from that perspective. And we, I talked to, I talked with some other relievers about this too. Part of that is is what the front offices in baseball are looking for. Yeah. You know, we talked about what makes an effective reliever. First and foremost, don't give up runs. Right. Don't give up runs as a reliever, and that's kind of the ultimate goal. But further down the line than that, how do you not give up runs? What's the most efficient way to not give up runs? Yeah. And it's a strikeout. Like a strikeout is the most efficient no way to not get a guy on base. So everybody is pounding the table on who can strike out the most guys, whose stuff plays up the most from the bullpen. And you're right, you do sometimes lose some of that pitching philosophy of doesn't matter how you get outs, just get outs. Yeah. Well, the reward system's definitely different. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I, if I was playing in today's game that I wouldn't be forced to try to strike out 12 guys a game. Which you could have. Which I could have. And yeah. I tell people all the time, I could have thrown 98. Yeah. But that would have been a detriment to my long-term health and care of what I wanted to do. I, had, I pitched in a time that allowed me to pitch 21, 21 years for the Braves. I mean, it's a luxury to play to put that uniform on as long as I did. And to max out every single time would have been no benefit to my genetics. I already had six surgeries through my career that luckily only missed a minimal amount of time. And when I make the claim that Today, I could have thrown 98, but I would have had a six-year career. I'm, I'm serious. I don't think I could have pitched much more than that. The body can't withstand that kind of torque. Mm -hmm. And 
the way guys are training today, it concerns me because I want to see pitchers pitch as long as they can. And it seems like a shuffleboard game when next guy up, next guy in, this guy burned out, next guy up. And I think to me, from a, from a health standpoint, we really never really talk about it as an industry and why the injury prevention is even remotely part of the equation. It's can you throw the ball through the wall? Can you live in the strike zone with your stuff? And can you strike people out? Yeah. And that's unfortunate because guys who can really pitch in college that don't reach a certain RPM or miles per hour, they're not getting looked at. Yeah. And the pitching aspect of the game, I said the talent's through the roof, but the pitching is not. It isn't. I'm just stating a fact because most guys could not throw the ball where they want to because they're not being told that's an important part of their routine. It's we need you to spin the baseball more. We need you to throw it harder. And the style of hitting will be as conducive for the style of pitching to combat the basic lift, clean, and <laughs> separate type yeah. hitting. So I truly believe baseball will be in time, in years, go back to more pitchers and ask pitchers to do more of their role right. and train in a different way because eventually, and I could be wrong, Eventually, the lack of healthy pitchers will force organizations to think differently yeah. because the factory of arms are coming. They're there, and they say it's a byproduct of youth baseball. But I still maintain that if the reward system were to change a little bit, then you would see pitching change. Without a doubt. I get nervous to think about the electronic strike zone that may be coming, may not be coming, we'll see, because you're incentivizing at that point guys to throw the ball as hard as they can somewhere through that strike yeah. zone. And as a hitter, like if the pitcher doesn't know where it's going, you for sure don't know where it's going and it's going to be tough. Yeah. You're there, the guys are going to live at the top of the strike zone. They're going to live on the up and arm side which is going to be guys miss, but it's going to be coming at 98, 99, yeah. 100 miles an hour, which as far as a hitter goes, nobody wants to see that. Right. Um, so I, I, I'm with you. I get nervous that pitching may be, maybe something that we're seeing less and less and less mm -hmm. of and throwing becomes. Well, the separation of greatness, um, the elite pitchers has never been greater as far as I'm concerned. Sure. Like, That's true. Yeah. I think you're seeing some elite pitchers that are, are even thought of as even more elite than normal because the gap is so big. Yeah. And so young pitchers aren't able to come in ready at the big league level and they have to learn as they pitch. And if they don't learn quick enough, they go right to the pen, which uh, zaps their growth of that third or fourth pitch. And so they become two pitch pitchers that are talented enough to go through 45 to 60 innings worth. And then they just get replaced. So, you know, when you start seeing the, the, the elite pitchers of today the, and the gap is so big, that's when you're seeing the disparity of um, not only contracts, but the opportunity to get those guys. Yeah. So most of the pitching, if you think about it, the elite pitching is on the same five teams. And it's not spread out. And the young youngsters trying to make his name for himself by coming in the scene and letting it rip. It's kind of the Wild West right now. We kind of you used to make jokes with the Astros that we were in the West and everybody in the West had four guys in the bullpen that were coming out throwing 100 mm -hmm. miles an hour. But we were the only team that was winning a lot of ball games because we could put together, we had starters and relievers. Yeah. And we could put together a full baseball game. You know, right. We had guys on the field, guys on the, on the mound. In and the you're bullpen. seeing the injury. Um, you know, I used to not I chuckle when everyone thought that Tommy Johns were just for starters. <laughs> 
And I said, you're going to see an epidemic of Tommy Johns in the bullpen. Oh, that's yeah. going to scare you. And, and you're going to see that the usage in the early years of their careers is going to hurt them for their longevity. And then they're going to be, quote, unquote, damaged goods. Yeah. And they haven't had a chance to make their money yet. And so I'm interested to see how some of the guys like Josh Hader are handled in this particular year mm -hmm. and this particular time of baseball because he became to the Milwaukee Brewers what Mariano Rivera times 10 was to the Yankees. Yeah. But Mariano Rivera, in a controlled environment, could pitch because he had that one tremendous cutter and great mechanics and didn't overthrow. Correct. And you got guys throwing 98, 99 miles an hour every time they pitch. I just don't know how that's humanly possible to sustain that. Let's talk about injuries for a second, because I, I I am interested. This is kind of close to home for me. The last couple of years, I've dealt with some some arm problems, and kind of going from the rotation to the bullpen, and then back to the rotation, and back to the bullpen. You know, a change of routine like that takes its toll on people. And you had right. um, you had arm issues yes. you know, throughout your whole career, um, and like you said, you were fortunate enough to not miss a ton of time with it. But you, I'm sure, it was always something that you were dealing with. Right. Whether it's in the back of your mind, or you wake up in the morning and you do like the test, and say, mm -hmm. how does it feel today? Am I, am I? Do I think I'm going to make it? What was it? What was the mental battle like for you through all of those injuries and rehabs yeah. and coming back and all that? Well, the good and the bad is we didn't know so much about stuff as we know today, and that's good and bad because yeah. we can overcorrect and overtrain on things that we know by technology. So I was always evolving as a pitcher and always trying to figure out how I could keep myself healthy. The off seasons were super important, but most of them were spent rehabbing. So I think the difference between what we were training for and what guys are training for today is we didn't focus so much on the big muscles. We were trying to recruit all the little muscles and, and the little tendons. So in other words, high rep, low weight, but a ton of reps and do it mechanically right so that you build a base so that when you when you pitch throughout the start of the season to the end, you're tearing down little microfibers. You're not going to be as strong at the end of the season as you are in the beginning. And the, the goal is to maintain that so that you don't get to a point where you're fatigued and increase injury. Well, today I watch and I'm going to go see somebody tomorrow that pitches in an era where they lift massive amounts of, of whether it's medicine balls, weights, and they're trying to get so strong that they're building their bigger muscles first, which in pitching is fast twitch fibers. It's not like there's a reason in the history of our game until now, pitchers never look the way they look. Yeah, we don't we don't beach muscles. No. Well. And guys look more like they should be at a beach today than ever before. And they're strong as all get out, but that doesn't sustain their ability to pitch at that kind of velocity. So we ran a lot. That doesn't happen anymore today. And we, and as for me, I was constantly dealing with my genetics. I was loose jointed and hypermobile. Yeah, same. So I had to do a lot of high rep. The strongest I ever was was about 33 to 37 years old, where I really maintained, uh, you know, anywhere between 1,200 and 1,400 reps a day between my legs and upper body. I'm Goodness. talking three sets of bench press, low weight, 30 reps each set to fatigue. And the purpose was you build to fatigue, and that fatigue, then you start recruiting muscles to help your big muscles. So every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I built a base 
And I worked really hard to sustain the longevity of my career while as pitching 240, 250, and then another 40 innings in the postseason, that would have to be, you know, I was being torn down to have to rebuild that again. Right. So I spent a lot of time on flexibility and a lot of time I'm not losing my flexibility but maintaining strength. So if I would have attacked the bulk areas of my body, I would have lost flexibility and I would have put myself in jeopardy to have a lesser career physically. I had my three scopes in your elbow and then the Tommy John. You know, I had the one that took me out of my career and I would I would have pitched till I was 45, I was convinced, but my right shoulder um, finally gave out and had nine anchors in that and came yeah. back to finish my career. But if your stability in your lower half is not there, your upper half will ben- will not benefit. So any good foundation like a building is from the bottom up. It's not the top down. And we're doing it kind of upside down. We're building the top down. Yeah. And so inside my knees to my hips were always the key to building a good, fundamental, durable, um, mechanical foundation that hopefully would sustain the repetition that I need to throw thousands of pitches in a, in a year. Was there ever one of those injuries that you thought, this is going to be it. This is going to be the one. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. I back battled the shoulder a long time, and and that's when you would see me change arm angles and try to alleviate the pressure. And ultimately, the shoulder for me, because it was so dynamically loose that I could take my elbow and go way beyond the normal uh, degree of range of degree. That allowed me to have the natural whip that I would throw a baseball with. So when they went into my shoulder, which they wanted to do early in my career, but I refused and got a trainer to work with me for the entire part of my career, which changed. I used to sublux. My, I'd yeah. throw a baseball on my shoulder with sublux. And that means it would come out of socket, but luckily would come back in after I'd hung and pop it in. But that's not a good sign for a pitcher long term. So I had to strengthen that part, which I did, and it sustained for the next 15 years. But I was always cognizant of my shoulder because the elbow thing I could pitch around and you could do certain things to kind of – there were times where I just had to eat it and not not let anybody know I couldn't throw back-to-back sliders because yeah. my elbow was barking. There are things that I got criticized for that later people would say, why didn't you say something about it? Well, that gave an advantage to the hitter. If he knew I couldn't do a certain thing, then it gave him an advantage. Right. So I, I constantly was working hard to make ta- maintain the year before's workload. And I think nothing greater, like 1996 personally was my greatest year, but it was also the year where I threw a total of about 300 innings. Goodness. And so 259 or seven in the regular season, another 40-some in the postseason. At the end of that year, I was shot. And you should be. I mean, it was yeah, spent. Right. And I spent the next couple years getting ready for the next, comp- you know, in 97, Pitched more innings. I was about to say had a lower ERA, but or or not a lower ERA, but had just as much success, but not as many wins. And then ultimately, two thousand, I ended up having Tommy John, which I knew for seven years I needed. It was coming. Yeah, and I chose to pitch to the point where I couldn't pitch anymore. And then, ironically for me, I was going to retire. This is at the age of thirty-four now. I didn't think anyone would wait around for a thirty-four-year-old to get his Tommy John fixed. And I and the club kind of somebody put. Literally, Tommy John called me because I was I was content with just hanging it up. I I just didn't think, and he called me and he said, "Don't do it." He said, "I pitched another eleven years, meaning him personally, when no one knew what this surgery was going to do." And he encouraged me to go through it. I went through it and I pitched another seven years, and I'm so glad for it because I would have missed out on a lot of different things in my career. 
and I rehabbed. And once I did the surgery, I never had a doubt I wasn't coming back. And uh, I had doubts along the way that what I thought was a retorn ligament In, ended up during being rehab. Yeah. yeah, ended up being just another tendonitis. So there's a lot of things that my career spoke physically. No one would believe what I went through, but it was what you had to do when we were in our times. And you got paid if you pitched, mm -hmm. and you didn't get paid if you didn't. And that was yeah. the way it was. I tell guys, I'm like, you have no idea what kind of anti-inflammatories guys are yeah. on, what type of things guys will put their bodies through to just be out on the field. Yeah, I'm paying, as they all say, I'm cashing the checks my body I'm definitely paying for some things right now that I might I need I need two hips re replaced, but that's more genetic and and kind of pitching as well. And your golf game, I mean, come on. I want to play golf as long as yeah. I can. I've had two left shoulder surgery, believe it or not. I tore it while I was hitting in 96, 97, never got it fixed till I retired. And uh I'm hopeful that the surgeries other than my hips will be the last ones I deal with, but I, I've been. I would do it all over again the same way. I said I never would get a cortisone shot when I walked in the big leagues and saw the first one given to someone. Seventy-five later, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, over a twenty-one year career, over yeah. different parts of your bodies, allowed for me to function at a high level when it would have been probably easier to just sit for two weeks. But um, you know, those are things that I don't regret. I wouldn't do differently. I, I loved every. Every moment of the era I pitched in, it was a great run. I mean, an incredible run. Let's talk for a minute um, about hitting. You were an eight-time All Star. You won a Cy Young Award. You're two hundred game winner. But most importantly, you were a Silver Slugger. You could rake. But I remember the commercial. Chicks dig. Chicks dig the long ball. How were you not in that commercial? So it's still a sore subject with me. Yeah, I wasn't so a Nike guy, and it was a Nike commercial. And those guys knew. That I I was the only one at the time that had hit homers. Stop it! They didn't they have homers. Had, no, they had no homers. Wow! But it was a great commercial on their end. Um, you know, they always knew I was a little jealous that I truly was the home run hitter, and they were punching Judy. Well, fortunately for them, after that commercial, they did hit a couple home runs. You know, to save <laughs> face, Maddox actually ended up hitting I think four or five. Glavin got one, but you know, I took a lot of pride in the hitting. Uh, I was one of those guys that was today's style lift. I was trying to hit, go deep every time. Oh, yeah. But bunting was number one. I could get a bunt down at will. That was pride. That was going to help me win. But when it came to letting it go, I, I would. I had a hard time keeping two hands on the bat, literally. <laughs> and in 97, I think the year I won the Silver Sluggers when I tore my left shoulder. I did. I think I ended the season one for 18 and still was able to win. I was how good of a year I was having offensively. Jeez. And um, the worst decision of my life was to not get it fixed. And I just didn't want to go through another rehab season of something that didn't enable me to pitch. I could pitch with this bad left shoulder. Right. Never really could hit after that because of it. And I just kind of convinced myself they don't pay me to hit anyways. <laughs> but I loved hitting. And especially in high school, the first two and a half years I went to the American League, we never hit. When I got to the National League, I was like, all right, I get to hit. And uh, got lucky enough to hit a few home runs and get some hits in the postseason and and felt competitive at least to the point where my own, my eyes were my own radar gun. If you threw 90 and above, I was soup. <laughs> but if for the early part of my career, I could bait guys into breaking balls because oh, yeah. I would take good enough swings at a fastball thinking that I was on it, and I was a really good breaking ball hitter. But then that, that ended once the scouting report got out. <laughs> That's hilarious to me. I blame Mizuno then. It's it's Mizuno. You were with Mizuno. I was with right? Mizuno, yeah. yeah. Sorry, guys. 
who was a better athlete? You were Tom Glavin. He was well, a good athlete. He too, was right? a good athlete. He was a better hitter from a standpoint that he would put the ball in play, kind of slap it. He played hockey. From an athletic standpoint, yes, it would be me over those guys. Greg was a sneaky good athlete. He didn't look like it, but he sneaky good athlete. He was. He was, and he could play. Back in his day, he said he could dunk. I know it doesn't look like it now, but wow, I'll take his word for it. But so we all took pride in our really in our defensive skills yeah. when we would release the baseball. Uh, I would be remiss to say that I'm bitter that Glavin and I. Well, more or less, Maddox won all the gold gloves. But it was, to be fair, it had nothing really to do with the ability to be the best defender. He got the most chances. I've heard stories that he he set himself up to win gold gloves by making sure that he got the most outs at first base. Is that true? Yes. Yeah. See, it's it's all business. It's a business plan. It is a business plan, and he executed. He had the most comebackers, you know, off the end of the bat. He was a magician on the mound, no doubt. He was a thinking man's pitcher. He was remarkable to watch. If you saw his bullpens, you would just go, this is ridiculous. <laughs> but when it came to the gold gloves, I, I'm telling you right now, um, I am bitter about it. He made seven errors one year and got the gold glove. Stop it. So, seven errors? Yeah. And he knew he was getting it. <laughs> so at least the three of us, we can combine a lot of our accomplishments together and uh, we can say, what is it? Uh, we have, what, seven Cy Youngs between us or something like that. I have one. Maddox has four. Does Tommy have two or one? You had to have finished second like multiple times. No, correct? it was weird. You know, it's like the, the, the year I thought I had a real good chance to win it, I went 17 and three and, and really didn't get votes because I didn't, I pitched only in 26 games. Uh, and then there was a year I, I, I was with me and Webb with Arizona and the voting happened before the last game was pitched and he gave up a ton of runs and I pitched good. But that, that what I felt was a burden on me was the expectation of how many people thought I should win multiple Cy Youngs. Yeah. And, and, and honestly that was something that because of my stuff played so well, it it was a leverage and advantage for me in the postseason Mm -hmm. where I could shine was in the postseason I looked at it in the regular season as a as a marathon, stay healthy, but get to the postseason and do what you can do. And I pitched it totally different. And people ask me, well, why couldn't you have put together now 96? I did. I was completely healthy and 24 and 8, and the bullpen was 18 for 18 and save opportunities. And it all came together and I finished it with a fantastic postseason. But the way I looked at it is postseason starts aren't guaranteed you know you're given 36 starts in a right. regular season. If I pitched a regular season game like a postseason, I could not have made it through 18 of them. I put so much attention to detail and so much energy in those games because they meant so much and you weren't guaranteed another one, you can't afford to just 3-1 fastball somebody. No. You can't afford to take a, a, a bat off or, or not be locked in. And I was so focused in the postseason. And it was, I would tell people it was like pitching two to three innings per every inning you would pitch. Oh, at least. And I think when that magnifies itself, and I I, I go back and go, could I have done that in a po- in regular season? Yeah, but I would have been a wet noodle. Like, I'd have been no chance available at the end of the year. So I still tried to win those games in the regular season, but I challenged guys a lot. And I would give up, you know, my share of home runs through that and never did that in the postseason. So it is like having two different seasons and – you know, I wouldn't have traded it for for anything. A matter of fact, I would give up personal acclimates to pitch more postseason games. That yeah. to me was what it was. A, it was everything. 
Yeah, well, you got the opportunity to so many times. I mean, it's crazy to think that, you know, I've been to the playoffs four times now, but you guys did it for so many years yeah. in a row that did it become something that was expected? I think so. We never knew how long it would last, but when the middle of our run, we knew that we got a chance to do something special. And that's why 96 was such a teeter-totter effect. You know, the swings were too great and we lost a lot of players after that. Mm -hmm. But he always kept our starting staff together. It's similar to what the Washington Nationals have done in the sense that they're four, three big, big three have been together for a while now and you can interchange the other parts, but the big three were able to do something special. Yeah. And when they're on, they're, I mean, yeah. they make for, we saw it, make for an almost impossible team to beat. Yeah, and so that's that's kind of the mindset here, and it was in Atlanta. And um, when you get to that time of the year, you can't rest on what you did in the previous postseason. You know, and that's the beauty of postseason baseball. You have one big, huge blow-up game, and it doesn't go away. You know, but at the same time, if you can keep delivering, it's something that you believe. And I always believed I could do it, and... You know, there's probably been only one or two games in the 27 I've appeared in, however many I've appeared in the postseason, where those were the only two games that I thought I didn't give our chance a chance to win. I could have won every other game uh, in that stretch, and that's what I'm most proud of because there's no guarantees. You yeah. don't you don't get another guarantee, and to pitch three game sevens was a dream come true, and certainly. I lived that as a child. I, I put myself in every situation imaginable to pitch a game seven. I did it outside a brick wall a hundred times. I was pitching a game seven yeah. with a rubber ball and I was 12 years old and imagining what that would be like. Yeah, nobody at 12 is like, this is August 5th no. and I'm pitching against the Pittsburgh Pirates. And, yeah. yeah, and it's 112 degrees outside. Yeah, and, and I was you know in some of the most hostile environments, which, which I looked at as people would say, well, what's it like pitching on the road? You know, and... There will never be a louder place in Game Seven or any end game in, than the Dome in Minnesota. It was Did, that, oh, really? It was so loud. There's nowhere for the volume to go. Um, you know, it was the baggy roof. It was, and I just remember if I said to myself, if I can make them a dull roar, I'm in. I'm in a good place. You're good. But if I can hear that roar, and that roar becomes, that means I got traffic on bases. And I'm not doing my job. And I literally, for seven innings, did not hear hardly anything. That's how much of a zone I was in with Greg Olson behind the plate. And the only time I heard the roar is when I got taken out of the game, when it was first and third and one out, and Puckett was up, and I couldn't believe Bobby had taken me out. Puckett hadn't hit me. and I You knew you had him. Oh, I had him. Yeah. There was no doubt I wasn't going to give up a run that inning, but he... Uh, what I, he ended up walking Puckett to pitch to Herbeck, and we got the double play. Right. And, you know, game. So that was Stanton. Yeah. yeah it was Mike. Yeah. It, it's funny when you look back on things and you're like, these decisions end up making somebody look good, but they so easily could have gone differently. Yeah. And just hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Right. For sure. Man, that's crazy. I've been. All, I've always been interested in this because you played in Atlanta for such a long time. And you saw guys. You played with guys for a long time there, but then you saw guys move on, and then some guys come back. And friendships in baseball are tough mm -hmm. because you kind of have a built-in friendship while they're a teammate. You're with right. them 24 hours a day for eight months out of the year. But when they move on, you kind of have to pick which guys you want to continue to be friends with and have to put in a lot of effort when they're not around right. you all the time. Do you feel like, feel like you built a lot of solid friendships over the years? or Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I was fortunate to be in one place for 21 years. Yeah. So, you know, I, I played with a lot of guys that came and went. But – 
you definitely, you know, for Greg Olson is one of my best friends. He's caddying for me on when I when he can. Uh, he caught me for a couple years. He's a great story. He was a rookie at 29. But guys like him and Charlie Liebrand, Steve Avery, Tom Glavin, Greg Maddox, you know, the young guys that broke in, Jeff Francoeur and Brian McCann, I always feel like, you know, I have, I, I was a big part of their careers. You definitely personality driven and certain circles, you know, I, I consider in baseball, certain circles don't intersect yeah you know based on what you believe and your stances you know, are going to keep people from entering your circle mm -hmm. and i felt like that was part of the game you know you walk in a locker room and there's going to be segments of that locker room that reflect segments of life and they're going to be guys that have different ideas and what they view is important and what they think is fun versus so the personalities in our locker room for the most part, were really uh, unique because we didn't have a lot of those players that people could love to hate. You did a lot of turds, yeah. Well, like, we did, yeah. and and I think that's a beauty of what Bobby represented and what Atlanta represented. We got him out quick, if that was the case. And so, did y'all police yourselves pretty well? In we there? did. We 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 had a manager had three rules, and it was wear your, your hat right, show up on time, and no music in the clubhouse. And the reason those were three important rules is he didn't want anything to disrupt, like music. There are certain types of music that if I were pitching on a day that somebody had this music, it would, it would irritate me. Yep. It's just a personality thing. He said, wear your headphones. Now no one's going to be disrupted by some music that they like or don't like. So we didn't have it in any facet of our clubs. No plane, train, you know, buses, workout rooms, nothing. No music. We're the only one that I've ever known of that has ever had no music in the clubhouse or anywhere. Did it piss guys off? No, because they had headphones. Yeah, it was real easy right. to actually get used to something that was not going to irritate somebody. And when somebody would come in and try to mess with that, we jumped on them like it was like they were setting the shoes on fire. We yeah. said, put that music off. Yeah. Because if you can't listen to three rules, then you shouldn't be able to play. It's not hard. Yeah. You know, it's really not hard. And so from that standpoint, it was it was awesome. We yeah. had a manager that would run through he would run through a wall for us as long as we maintained the simplicity of what he asked for. Show up on time. How hard is that? Yeah. You know, he adjusted on some of the other rules. He didn't he didn't wear let anyone wear sunglasses. You had to wear the flip downs. Yep. Dress code he adjusted over time, but you know, we understood what it was like to play for him that if you're going to complain about those little things, you need to go play somewhere else. Yeah, you're gonna have you're gonna have more things to yeah. complain about. You're, you want to complain at that yeah. point, right? Yeah. yeah, I've always been interested about uh, interested by clubhouse dynamics because the funnel at this point is so small that everybody has really played with or against yeah. everybody else in the league, and so your reputation follows you wherever mm -hmm. you go. And so the guys who have been able to develop and maintain uh, a high reputation over long periods of time is fascinating to me. And Bobby's one of those guys. Yeah. Everybody who's ever played for him or been around him has always said... He had the power that maybe no manager for the rest of time will ever have. He had the influence, the ability to say no to management. He had the ability to uh, stand on his reputation for what he did for a ball club. And he knew how hard it was to attain things as a player. So he worked hard to allow you to make one of your bonuses. He worked hard. He knew what those coaches. bonuses were too, he, right? He absolutely did. And he knew through his coaches, he would say, go ask, come back to me and let me know. And I'm going to do everything I can to make sure that they have an opportunity to reach something that will make a difference in their life.
That's huge. I mean, uh, people talk about players, managers, and players, coaches, and whatever. Uh, the The biggest thing for me is just somebody who listens and somebody who's willing to, yeah. willing to listen to people. He took bullets for things that he had no business taking. That's really? where I think people went. You just took that for me, <laughs> and there's no reason you should have. And and I used to ask him. I was like, Why are you letting other players bring you down and allow? You? If he could take the focus off the player and put it on himself, he was fine taking the criticism. You're talking about a Hall of Fame manager that took more criticism in this town than any other manager I can think of. And yet when he was done or by the end of his run, it became his advocate. Like that was what they looked at and go, well, this is why he was so successful. But meantime, he's getting his legs taken out from him, from media, and and all the reasons we didn't win were were partly due to his managering. And I was like, you guys are getting this all wrong. <laughs> when you got bases loaded, nobody out, and you don't get the ball past the pitcher, that's nothing a manager can do. And that's how <laughs> that's how our games would come down to. Yeah, it's funny to see guys uh, post career, kind of how their playing career, or in Bobby's case, his managing career, gets solidified when one way or another simply based on results yeah. and a lot of it's based on it's a team game based on results that most of the time you didn't have a whole lot to do with yeah you know you probably could have won you i think you're the only uh starting pitcher early pitcher in the hall of fame with less than a certain amount of wins i don't know but how many wins could you have gotten had the bullpen yeah no doubt you know i think about what you know people are always trying to fast track my career and whether or not i could have got 300 wins i mean i missed five years of starting right so i often think that what i my greatest attribute was that i was durable even if i didn't have and physically felt well um that i was going to pitch 240 innings every year um and at the same time when it came down to judging my career there's really nobody that ever had a path like mine. They want to say Dennis Eckersley, but it's polar. It's really opposite. He was forced into a role based because he was no longer able to start. Right. And he became one of the most elite closers in the game. I was only doing that to help a team. Was it your decision initially to go to the bullpen? It was. Really? Uh, again, Bobby wasn't for it. <laughs> and then it became the only thing that management wanted me to do. Yeah. And it was very difficult to listen to and hear stuff like the rotation set and i'm like what <laughs> so it became my own undoing but in a unique way it became a unique career that ultimately redefined things that nobody could think of i i was called crazy i was called when i went to the closers role then all of a sudden it erased 14 years of pretty darn good starting that affected me in a way that i wasn't pleased by that right it was like all of a sudden everyone forgot what i did and they said, this is what I was meant to be. And then when I left the closers role and went back to starting, a million people said I was crazy, that this was never been done before and it could never be done, including my general manager, including every so-called, no one was an expert. So how could somebody come out and say, uh, I'm not an expert in this, but there's no way that John Smoltz can go from four years of not starting to going right back to the starting. I said, and it's and probably the only time I was a little arrogant in my life when it came to negotiating. I said, take my baseball card and turn it over. Because uh, for then, th that was our resume. Yeah, That's what we were getting paid on. It was no speculative. It was no analytics that we're going to talk about what we're going to do in the next five years. It was, I pitched 14 years over 200 innings. You can pretty much count that I'm going to do that again. And that's what I told him. I said, it's trainable. It's innate. It's something I've done. I know how to train for this. 
So that first year, with all the speculation, all the things, I led the innings pitched on that team by 30. Stop. 30 And innings? everyone at that point, when I got to the end of the year, the same general manager that was complaining that I couldn't pitch 200s was telling me to rest because they needed me for the postseason. <laughs> and it was the only win we got in the postseason was my game against Clemens. It was the, I was the perfect chicken or the egg. Mm -hmm. I could be the closer. I could be the dominant starter. But what was more important? What was going to and, – and so when we lost our starting pitching, in essence, the, the thump in our starting pitching – now I'm talking no Maddox, no Glavin, no one's there. It's a remade rotation. Me sitting in the bullpen, the opportunities weren't coming. Yeah. So imagine Mariano Rivera never getting the opportunities he got. with The Yankees wouldn't be the Yankees. Right. And so it's the it is the chicken and the egg. And he asked me afterwards, you know, after three years of closing – what makes us better? And I said, well, again, give me 11 opportunities in the postseason, we'll win the World Series. But I'm leading after four games in a five best of five series. I had the most innings pitched as a closer. As the closer. <laughs> That's not possible if you're going to move on. Right. And, you know, the rest was history. I pitched three more years, made an all-star or two, and, you know, I never uh, looked back yeah. and never felt like I couldn't do it. I was nervous my first game. I gave up a six runs in an inning and two-thirds in as Miami a starter? as a starter. Oof. And, of course, everyone, you know, the articles were written. <laughs> and that year ended up making the All-Star game, I believe. So to me, when you're comfortable and are content and know what you can do, you can listen to the rhetoric and affect you, or you can put your head down and just continue to do the things that you know make you good at what you're doing. And I think that noise has never been greater today of taking guys away from their strengths and pitching to guys' weaknesses because that's exposed. All the information tells you. If you're a hitter, I know it goes somewhat like this. You can't do this. You can't hit this. You're hitting 143. What about what I do well? And if I'm only pitching to your weakness, then I'm going away from my strength. And I just think it's, a, it's again, it's a, it's a tug and you know, pull on, on what we're trying to get with the information we have and forget that this guy's really good at a sinking fastball. Well, we don't want that anymore because that doesn't read well right. on the spin rate and what we're trying to do. We should take a guy away from what he's doing and you try to give him a secondary pitch that he's not great at. Next thing you know, he doesn't know what he is good at. Right. And he's only the reason guys are getting hit and the reason guys is because they're trying to throw up and into a spot that guys hit 143 at. They're not good enough to throw it to that spot. <laughs> they haven't perfected that. Who can? Right. And that's where I think baseball has gotten to where the information, majority of it is good, but some of it really does damage to people if they're not careful and taking away what they're good at. I see young kids come up, and it's I don't think it was specific to the Astros. I think it's happening all around baseball, but young kids coming up, throwing bullpens, and then immediately – after their bullpen, going to the computer and saying, well, what were my trackman numbers? Without ever realizing, like they are baffled by the question of how did it go? Right. How did your bullpen go? What'd you work on? I'm amazed by that. And, and I think back to how what would we have done if that was available. We were taught differently, so I don't think it's relevant, but I can promise you I wanted to know if nine out of ten times I hit my spot down and away. If I didn't do it eight out of ten times, to me, that wasn't a good session. I don't think people even know how to go five out of ten times to their sweet spot. That's 
that's where we're trying. We're not making a pitcher's master one thing. We're making them mediocre at a lot of things. Yeah. And if I asked most pitchers, which side, glove side or arm side, do you dominate? I don't even know if they accurately know what that is <laughs> because I'll watch film and go, no, I think it's actually glove side. And if you don't know what you're good at to uh, actually apply the information, then you become a, you try to do a lot of things mediocre yeah. instead of doing something really good and then pitch off of that. When Jacob deGrom broke into this game, I remember doing his game. I, was, I did his debut. He had such unbelievable arm side command. It was, it was rare to a lot of right-handed pitchers that I had seen where he dominated on the inside part of the plate to right-handers. Well, the reason he's a two-time Cy Young Award winner is not because he still just does that. He learned how to pitch on the other side of the plate. Right. So his sweet spot was here, and then he learned how to do it. Now, all of a sudden, good luck. Now he can trying. cut the ball off that side. He can sink the ball off this side. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And he didn't allow. He did for a little bit. He got velocity-driven for a while. And then got away from it by throwing some two and two bullpens in between and got reconnected with his mechanics. He now can do just about anything he wants to do. And that's what's allowed him to be a dominant pitcher. Do you have a favorite pitcher to watch in baseball right now? He's one of my favorites. Um, you know, I, I, I think anytime I can watch Max Scherzer, I think I'm watching a throwback pitcher to the 1920s. Yeah. Um, I've, I've always been enamored with, with Steven Strasburg. I think a lot of things mirror my career and expectation that's so far great that he can't reach that now he's finally coming into his own. I've never seen a pitcher with four dominant pitches like he has had. And yet so much controversy in ways that surround his career and what he should do or what he could do. Should he have sat? Should he have not? This past year, I think, unlocked a lot of that hype yep. that was around his career when he I did his debut he struck out 14 Pittsburgh Pirates in his debut it in was seven crazy innings. it was unbelievable and I don't think since then that he's been able to live up to anything that he's been able to do because it was such a hype machine and then of course the Tommy John and the injuries and the constant injuries I think for one year he undid so many things that can free him up as a baseball player that maybe for the rest of his career he, he can enjoy. It's hard, and there's very few pitchers that can do this. You were probably one of them in your prime that has essentially four of the most dominant pitches in baseball, um, and they're interchangeable. Yeah. Now, I, I do think every young, dynamic, hard-throwing pitcher should look at Justin Verlander's career. I think they should, they should investigate. They should ask him questions. He's a freak. But beyond the freak is he's utilized his, I call him like, I first named him a 10-speed bike because he has gears that he can go to through the game that don't necessarily have the highest value and velocity early. He saves it for later. It's amazing to watch. I've always loved watching him pitch, and he has never really changed his body. He's changed mechanics. He's changed with information. Um, since coming to Houston, he think he's become even a better pitcher yeah. with everything that, that that organization has been able to um, show him. So if you're a hard-throwing young man and you don't find out what he's done, you're doing yourself a disservice to yeah. think the longevity of his career stands the test of time. Was there somebody when you were coming up that you – wanted to pick their brain. You're like, I, I've got to know what this guy's doing. Yeah, I was, I was always asking questions. I, I had, you know, the good fortune of, of guys like, believe it or not, 
Oral Hershiser had no business coming to me and, and helping me out, but he gave me <laughs> advice. Pitchers back then were more apt to give advice and help the fraternity, yeah. if you will. And just just even Charlie Liebrand, he didn't pitch anything like me. He told me something that didn't make sense that instantaneously made sense after he explained it. We were in spring training, and he said, oh, oh, one, oh, why are you throwing your best slider? I'm like, what do you mean? I, gotta, I don't want him to hit it. Like, <laughs> no. Do you realize you show him their best slider OO, you got to keep that best slider. You're showing him more of that pitch. Save that pitch. Learn to, to break it a little ways here. And then he taught me the touch on that pitch because that's what he was crafty. He was crafty. He knew how to take a little off, put a little on. But it made sense when I started realizing, here's a guy that pitched a long time. He used to throw harder, but he said, don't throw your best pitch the first pitch when you're trying to show him, when you're trying to get him out with that pitch later. And he just did little things that I started to think about that made sense for the way that I was trying to attack hitters. And I, you know, it taught me um, how to change angles on my slider, how to manipulate my slider. I made my slider look like three different pitches. Really? Whereas I guess today, they would teach me to spin that sucker as hard as I can and with the highest velocity. I could throw it 90, 92 miles an hour, but then every time doing that doesn't have any variation and puts a lot of stress on my elbow. So if a hitter laid off my really, really good slider, I would say, okay, you're not laying off this sweeper now. I would change the speed on it. And, and the way that we were taught to throw it mechanically allowed us to create a lot of whip to it. And it became... You know, it was my signature pitch, right. but then my split came into play, and then my curveball gave more change of speeds. I understood to simplify the game, if I threw a high fastball to a hitter and he swung or fouled it off, then I was going to bring a curveball off that. But if I threw a low fastball on the outside part of the plate, then I was bringing my slider off of that, the same plain pitch. Right. I didn't try to – like, hitters in our generation didn't swing. If they swung up, they didn't swing down. They weren't – as soon as you release the ball, they're swinging. They had their zones because putting the ball in play was more of a priority for them. Right. Today, you can get away with more because as soon as the ball's coming in, they're trying to launch it. So you can have a little bit more variance. But back in the day, we, we certainly pitched off of the last pitch the hitter recognized is the pitch, the only thing they can remember. So if they swung at a high fastball, very, very rarely did they ever swing at a pitch in the dirt the very next pitch. Well, for sure. And so that's how we simplified our game by, by, by utilizing the, the area that the last pitch was that they recognized. Because there's no way they can see spin to the degree that you, you know, unless it's a bad dot on your breaking ball, they're reacting off to arm angle and arm action, and then of course, obviously velocity. Yeah, like the hand speed. If you can, if you can have it all come out of generally the same slot with generally the same arm speed, I think a lot of times we we give hitters too much credit. Absolutely, and that's where uh, yeah. having been in the box as a pitcher helped me realize how hard it is to hit. They look so close. Pitchers look so close when you're in the box. They look yeah. like they're right on top of you. Yeah. Man, uh, do you feel like the your perspective now, we, we just talked about it in the sense that this game is a lot of times, what have you done for me lately? You know, the, the 14 years that you spent as a starter mm -hmm. can get washed away in a moment when you become a reliever and back and forth. Do you feel like that perspective of going back and forth in a lot of ways helps you with your, your new career as, a, as an announcer? Yeah, I, first of all, I'm never going to approach the game like it was easy. So yeah. when, when players in my generation that's kind of now, I don't have really anybody left – 
maybe the Adam Wainwrights, the Scherzers, and Verlanders are still kind of when I was playing. Yeah. I never approached this game like it was easy, and I'm always trying to explain to the viewer what the difficulties of this game are and why things can happen. If a guy makes three straight errors on the same play, then it's up to him to make the adjustments. You can't justify always that you know that play, although being difficult, you, you got to make certain adjustments. So from that standpoint, I'm trying to teach the viewer at home some of the, the little cat and mouse games. It has gotten more pitching-centric in the sense that strikeouts, walks, and homers, right? So, you know, for me, fortunately, the last three World Series have been filled with veteran-lading pitches. I know exactly. Verlander said this to me last year when he re-watched part of the game after he pitched, and I think I called like four pitches in a row, and he says, as if you had my pitches. I said, no, I knew exactly what you are going to do based on the previous pitch. Right. I said, because you've pitched in a game. I've watched him. I've studied video. I do a ton of work as if I was still playing. So I will look at a team, and, and if you're pitching, I'll watch all the matchups you had against certain players and develop my own game plan on based on what I've seen you do. And then you know that it's not really my job to be right all the time. It's just to predict. And if yeah. I can predict and give the viewer at home kind of like a catbird seed of what it's like, then they get a little more out of it by just necessarily going repeating fastball up and the guy hit it out of the park. Well, why? And why did he choose that pitch? Right. And you know that's where I'm. I'm. I'm having a lot of fun, but it's a ton of work. I'm talking on an average game day. So if a game was tomorrow, I would spend five hours that day looking at numbers, videos, matchups, figuring out what the trends are going on because I got to catch up with that team. People have no idea. No. 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 no not everybody does that. You'll right. see the guys that show up, wing it. When you're out of the game for about a year or two, you can probably not do any of that. Right. But then that catches up. Yeah. You'll get exposed on what you're really not doing. And and for me, I just don't want to, I don't ever want to have my be caught off guard. I don't want to go into a game not knowing something about somebody that I should know. And so I'm in constant catch-up mode and it it takes its toll. I love the postseason because then once I do all my grunt work leading up, then I get to follow the series. Yeah. And then I get to make predictions based on what I'm seeing. And and certainly last year was something we'll never see in the history of baseball ever again, that nobody wins a home game. Never again will that happen. No. And really my four years of doing this at the national level from the World Series, man, I've I've been part of some incredible ones. Like you're talking about Cubs and Indians. Yes, you, Game seven. Houston and L.A., yep. uh, Boston and L.A., and then last year Houston and Washington. And it just, when I look back and I kind of chuckle because when people are trying to figure out the matrix for what makes an organization great, do you know that you'd have to go back to 2004 to see a team that was in the top six in strikeouts or top 10 in strikeouts win a championship? The formula still works. <laughs> if you don't strike out the most or are in the highest areas of strikeouts, you got a better chance of winning. And by the way, the teams that usually win the World Series – their starting pitchers pitch the best. Yeah. I don't know why teams think that they're going to reinvent ways to win it, but if you just look back and follow the teams, the reason the Cubs came back from three games to one against the Indians is their starters were lined up and they did it. Same thing with you guys in 17. It was same thing with Boston and the same thing with the Washington Nationals. And I think, you know, 
we can try to outsmart the game and we can come up with all kinds of information, but the basic fundamentals usually went out. That's very true. That's very true. And I appreciate watching you announce because I really do think the beauty of the game is in the nuance, is in the small things. And to the casual fan, um, it's hard to pick up those things. Yeah. If you don't if you've never played the game or you've been watching the game for the last seven to ten years where you've seen it change and you've right. seen it kind of lose a little bit of the um, I don't want to say uh, lose a little bit of the magic because I think there's still that there, obviously, mm-hmm. but lose some of the variety uh, of what's happening in, in the game. Uh, to be able to see that, to be able, able to have somebody kind of point that out to you is really important. I love that when I'm watching other sports. I'm a big soccer fan. I'm a, yeah. a golf fan. I'm a football we've, fan. We've unfortunately become brainwashed by terminologies in this game, and we've almost got to be, I take it a responsibility to remind people, no. They just went to the World Series doesn't mean they're not going to be good next year because their arms are going to fall off. Like <laughs> We just are so quick to judge that we need these rests and these days off and the pitching and the, and the, and the we're getting, we're getting, we're forgetting that that's not necessarily true, but just because somebody keeps saying it doesn't make it true. And, you know, the Washington Nationals are not looking at Strasburg, Scherzer, and Corbin going... Well, we had a nice run last year. We're probably not going to get much out of them. And <laughs> no, they're expecting them to do the same thing. And when we did 14 years in a row, no one ever said to us, "Aren't you tired? Aren't you don't you fatigued? Don't you aren't you worried about?" No one said a thing. You know what our manager said? We're going to take it slow in spring training. We're going to give you the first month, then it's yours again. Yeah. And he prepared us and allowed us to think that we were going to just do what we were paid to do. And so, whenever I hear that. They're saying it to the wrong person. Like I'll be in a meeting and someone go, "Well, gosh, the, the the mileage on their arms last year." They're they're do- no, I did it 14 years in a row. Like <laughs> yeah. you're telling it the wrong guy. And if you brainwash a pitcher to think that he is going to break down, then he will. Right. You train for it. Mm-hmm. It's not like it's never been done before. It'd be different if we asked a guy to pitch 390 innings and it hasn't been done in God knows how long. That would be different. But we're actually detraining and giving responsibilities less to the people that should have it. And we're putting it on an industry in the bullpen that is interchangeable that nobody really cares about that says we'll just get the next guy next year. And Mm -hmm. that, to me, is a tough thing for me to swallow when I think about guys' careers being shortened and shortened and shortened and shortened. This is a great game. You should be able to play it as long as you can and as long as you're able to and not be told that 33 is too old. Yeah. You cannot tell me. I, I never forget Stan Caston, who ran our organization now as part of the Los Angeles Dodgers. He said, you three made it the most impossible thing in the world for me because I didn't know at 36 if you could still do it or not. So that decision was getting increasingly more difficult, but we did it through 41. Yeah. You're not going to see that anymore. Right. We've got a preconceived notion that we know based on a computer and input who's old and who isn't and how long they can do X, Y, Z. And I think that's a dangerous place because not everybody fits under the same mode. Yeah, it's hard to predict. It is. But everything's about prediction and trying to get as close as they can to their predictions. So it's tough. As a 32-year-old starter You're and reliever pitcher, I, I love that. I love that. All you MLB executives out there, you hear that. That's we're, right. all, we're in our prime. We're entering the prime. A um, couple more questions we ask to, to every guest, but um, we talk about pranks. I know you played with 
I know you played with Greg Maddox. Yeah. And I, I know some stories about Greg Maddox. Were you ever on the receiving end of any of those pranks? Yeah, not many, because we had this kind of uh, we unwritten, you know. You had an understanding. You had an understanding. As veteran guys, you don't really do it to each other. Right. Um, so, yeah, Greg Greg had a lot you can't really speak to uh, on the <laughs> air, but he he was he was a great teammate. I, I like to have fun with a lot of people, and I did a lot of pranks that yeah. didn't cause harm or bring humiliation, <laughs> but brought laughter and certainly had our share of them. And then Mr. Tim Hudson came in and oh. brought his antics from the West Coast of the Oakland A's and brought it into a very benign clubhouse and all of a sudden, no rules uh, applied, and he was getting everybody, including myself. <laughs> so there became a little bit of a rivalry in the prank department of which and who could outdo the next person. And then eventually there was a truce. But he had this, like this blow gun, this, this dart gun, that it was a long tube and that they would use aspirin and peg guys <laughs> at a high velocity with an aspirin. It hurt. Oh yeah, it's like it a little hurt. pellet. So that became, you know, one of the things that that Huddy was known for. And then of course, you know, hot stuff in the underwear and the socks and you know, that kind of was playing out in the wrong hands at time. And so the the the, the blowgun got I put eye black around the mouth of it and then <laughs> stuck something in there that where it couldn't work anymore, but that was all fun and nothing got too carried away and then he did his famous Hide in the Closet documentary with Eddie Perez. And Eddie Perez is basically afraid of just about everything. <laughs> and he was doing a documentary for Fox Sports on road life on the road. And he was showing a typical hotel room. Well, what he didn't know was that Hudson in the white mask, Friday the 13th mask, <laughs> was going to come out of the closet scared him beyond belief, so much so, and he had a couple more surprises for him in the bed that he ended up checking out of that room and getting a new room. <laughs> so we we assumed he was in there and kind of asked him how was the rest of, you know, there was a snake in there, there was a spider in there, not real, but authentically looked real. And he said, oh, I was so spooked, I changed room. Then we forgot, well, somebody else is going in that room so some poor person had to experience that. Uh, I apologize, apologize to the hotel yeah. for that complaint. Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of hotels in the league that are uh, supposed to be haunted. I know that you played in, you went through Milwaukee a lot of times. I remember yeah. you stayed at the Fister um, or the Townsend in, uh, yeah. in Detroit. I have not experienced that, but some guys are some guys are legitimately scared. Won't stay in those rooms. Yeah, the myth, the legend. You know, I think mean, those things have been passed on through time. I've never experienced any of that either, but. Uh, I find it really funny on how many people are <laughs> really into that and and are determined to prove that that they've heard something or seen something, and uh, I just find it funny. All right, last thing. Um, the music thing is really interesting to me, that y'all didn't listen to music in the clubhouse, on the road, wherever. I feel like every team that I've played for music is everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so you generally know what kind of music everybody is into because they're either playing it or singing it or it's blaring over right. speakers. What was the last thing that you listened to on purpose? Whether you turned on your iPad or you uh, put it on Spotify that you were like, I really want to listen to this. You know what's funny is um, I never, ever really got into that. You remember when we kind of started the birth of playing a song when you come to the plate. Yeah, walk-up songs. 
I thought that was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard about. <laughs> like that needed to motivate me when I came to the mound. So I'm now closing. And they came to me in spring training and said, what's your song? I said, I don't have a song. And I don't care to have a song. I'm not thinking about a song. When I come out of the bullpen, I want to get three outs. So play whatever you want. I'm not paying attention. They're no, you got to have a song. I said, I promise you, I don't have a song. I don't know the words to one song. And it's I played the accordion when I was little, and I grew up in an in a, in accordion's home, and I'm not into a song that I have to have. So they let it go. So first month comes and goes. Second month, I wa- remember walking out to the door, and Dancing Queen by ABBA was playing. <laughs> I get halfway to the mound. I cover my mouth. I'm laughing. I'm going... I, first of all, I don't want to be listening. I, I, I like ABBA, and I like yeah. that, but I, that's not what I want to. Now I'm listening to the song. The guy on deck was laughing. Like, <laughs> are you serious? You're coming into this song? So obviously it was a mistake. So they have come running down after the game. I got the save, thankfully, and they said, we apologize. We hit the wrong button. Didn't know you were coming in. I said, no, you've indirectly made your point. I'll get a song now. <laughs> so I, I put the bullpen in charge of a song. I said, please don't embarrass my dad. You know, he's played in a band for 50 years. Make it legit. What do you think works for me? They came up with Thunderstruck by ACDC, and it took off. And the place was going crazy when I would come in to Thunderstruck. And so I got so carried away with it that I actually mixed in the Star Wars theme song that would start out, and then Thunderstruck would take over later. And that's... That's how that came about, but I was never a guy that had headphones on before a game and listening to music. I just wasn't. I would rather play cards or do something. And to this day, um, you know, if I'm I'm working out and I got the headphones on, I'm literally kind of drives my wife a little crazy as I, I like listening to the 70s music. Yeah. I like listening to more music that that I grew up in and uh I like any kind of music I can understand. Yep. If I don't understand it or I can't make out the words or it's too loud, I'm not listening to it. It'll just irritate me. And so um, that's that's kind of how uh, – I'm not saying that Bobby rules made me that way. I just kind of was that way. It wasn't something I needed to, to be motivated or get crazy about. But I like to have fun. And if, if, um, if we were in an environment where music was playing and I had to show the guys a few uh, energetic moves, I would. Do you still play the accordion? I don't. No, no. I played it till I was seven years old and uh, was going to be the heir apparent in our family. My my parents fortunately let me play baseball when I was seven, but I was a lot of pressure on me. Uh, my mom and dad are both accordion players. Heard their uncles were both famous accordion players, and you know uh, it taught me discipline, work ethic. I had to practice a lot. It's not an easy instrument to play, and. Thankfully, after seven years old, I didn't have to play it anymore. Sorry it didn't work out for yeah, you. <laughs> yeah. Well, John, thank you so much for being here, man. This has been a pleasure. Um, My pleasure. I've, I've had a blast and wish you the best of luck this upcoming season. Um, look forward to hearing you on the, on the radio, watching you on TV, and seeing you everywhere MLB is. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. You are the dancing queen.